So I'm gonna, from now on, I'm gonna do four chapters in each episode. So let's begin with the first chapter of this episode. Let's begin. This is all very touching. Hankin said, your aunt sounds like a gem. Really, she does. It was good of her to solve the case for you. And it was good of you to pass her insights on to me. Still, if you don't mind, let's stick with the facts. Save the alternative theories for court. In other words, any attempt to win her over would have the opposite effect. You want me to keep going, I asked. She nodded. Just skip over the parts when you love well you loved ones declare your innocence. I woke up in the spare room thinking an hour had passed, but really it had been a whole day. My heart began racing before any brain understood why. There were voices coming from downstairs. At first, I thought was at Lynchy's TV blaring as usual. But it wasn't the TV. A live and heated conversation was unfolding somewhere. Below me, the deep pitch of a man's voice overwhelming my aunt soprano. Regardless, the man said. His voice sounded calm and violent at once. In combination, I'd recognize anywhere my husband, Detective Seen Walsh. Regardless, nothing, Aunt Lindsay said. You need to leave now. I slid on my glasses, crossed the hallway, crossed the hallway to the top of the stairs, and crouched down, listening. I put a hand over my mouth to quiet my breathing. Seen didn't know I was up there. Not yet. If he had, Aunt Lindsay wouldn't have been able to hold him back. I'll leave when I'm satisfied, Seen said. I could see down into the living room through a narrow gap between the banister's posts. I saw the back of the top of his head. I saw Aunt Lindsay's feet. The two of them were standing inches apart. I told myself that if Sean stepped any closer, I'd come charging down those stairs. Why wouldn't Sarah run to you? He asked, pressing. I have no idea, but like I said, she's not here. Maybe she realized she should go to the police. She didn't go to the police. How do you know? Maybe she called another precinct. Maybe they kept it from you for a reason. At Lynn's, I thought, be careful now. You saw she ain't, you saw she didn't reach out to you, she asked, even by phone? No, she told him. I mean, yes, as in yes, I'm sure that no, I haven't heard from her. Lindsay, let me spell this out for you. Your niece is in trouble. She's in trouble 
from every possible angle. I know you don't trust me. Don't believe my intentions are good. I know you know all you think you know that she and I have had our difficulties, but I'm the one, but I'm the only one who can help her now. You're right, I don't believe in your good intentions, but that doesn't change the truth. I haven't seen Sarah or heard from her. Really? Then why is that here? He was pointing. What? She asked. That. I craned my neck. His finger was aimed at the insulin kit. Aunt Lindsay could explain why she kept one in the house easily enough. But could she explain what it was doing in plain view? That's just, she began, I heard her brain working to invent a story. I knew she'd heard it too. That's just a travel kit. I always keep one for her. You know that. And every few months, I restock it, as any good nurse would do. You're a genuine soul, she said. Translation, he didn't buy a word she was selling. Listen, he said, I need your help. I'm launching a statewide search. Just in case Sarah's been, been abducted, I need photos. Lots of photos. Long hair. So hell, summer clothes, winter clothes, no one has more pictures of Sarah than you. He turned toward the staircase, toward me, and yanked my head back. Sheen wasn't asking, he was declaring. He knew she kept her family albums in the upstairs study. Wait, Aunt Lindsay said. He was ma- mounting the steps now, his badge flashing on his hip, his gun glistening. And it's hoister. I scrambled away. I don't have any photos of her up there, she said. Seems sniggered as if she just confirmed something for him. He kept climbing. You don't, huh? I saw a gallery's worth in your study last time I was here. I'm sure any of them would know, she said. I was crouched down at the far end of the hallway, too scared to stand and run. Sarah, seemed out. I love you. You know that. I want to help you. Please don't shut me out. Not now. I crawled on hands and knees into Aunt Lindsay's bedroom and then into her walk-in closet, hoping the general clutter might give me a place to hide. I heard scene moving through the upstairs, opening and closing doors, knocking on doors, toying with me like the stock girl in a slasher flick. You know who I work with, he told Aunt Lindsay. You know who she works for at a crossroads like this, up against an organization like this. She needs me, question my integrity all you like, but she needs me. He opened the bathroom door. I could have sworn you had a frame and picture of her in here. Look, scene, the scrapbooks. Are you in the guest bedroom, maybe? She lost her patience, decided to make a stand. You need a warrant, scene. You can't go through a house without a warrant. I caught a slight tremble in her voice. She thought I was still lying asleep 
in the spare room. The room scene was about to shut. My little Sarah is nobody's enemy, she added. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Lindsay. For once, we're in agreement. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter if Sarah is or isn't their enemy. It only matters that they think she is. Step by mechanical step, he made his way to the master bedroom. I pulled the closet door shut, crept behind Aunt Lindsay's luggage collection and covered myself with an armful of winter coats. Here's one, she said. He was talking about my high school graduation photo, and then she kept it in a silver frame on top of her dresser. That's picture 20 years old, Aunt Lindsay said. True, but like I told you, I need a wide range. People have to know what she used to look like, what she looks like now, and what she might look like tomorrow. A quick tour of four dresser drawers, maybe a glance under the bed, and then she was making his way toward the closet. Last chance, she said. If she's in there, why not just tell me? We are, are a little old to be playing hide-and-seek. How could she be in there when she hasn't even been by the house? Her tone, exasperated, fed up with being called a liar, was damn convincing. I hope seen that so, too. All the same, I will just take a peek. The door opened. I felt every muscle in my body contract. I expected the coats to go flying, expected to see Sean's smug face staring down at me. Instead, I heard him curse, heard his fist slam against the wall. Aunt Lindsay let out a little gasp. Then they were quiet while Sean regained his composure. You're a bit of a hoarder, Lindsay, he said. I started to think what we will find in the basement. There you go. That is the first chapter of this episode. On to the second chapter of this episode. Let's begin. When I knew for sure he was gone, I pushed my way out of the closet and peered into the hall. Aunt Lindsay was sitting on the floor, knees knees to her chest, heard head resting on her forearms. She'd heard me coming, but didn't look up. God bless you, sir, she said. I don't know how you do it. You're the bravest person I know. I looked around as if maybe she was talking to someone else. Grave, I said. I cowered in a closet while you fought my battle for me. I'm so sorry, Aunt Lynn's. If he'd done anything, if he so much as she, she stared out at nothing, there was sweat trickling down her forehead. I failed you, she said. What are you talking about? Never, not even once. You have been my companion, my champion every step of the way. My hero, it's me who failed you. I sat next to her, took her hand. A child can't. Fell a parent, she said. That's what I was really a parent. I wanted you, I wanted to do right by you, by your mother. 
I should have been paying closer, closer attention. I should have been more forceful. Now it's too late. You come to me for protection, and there's not a damn thing I can do. I squeeze her hand in the title. My marriage isn't your fault, Atlans, and you did do something. What's that? Chase him around my home while he hunted you down? Fat lot of good I'd have done if he found you. I don't mean that, I said. You moved my car, didn't you? While I was asleep, she smiled in spite of herself. It's in the church lot down the street, she said. And Anna's jewelry in the attic, wrapped up in your old sleeping bag. You know, if Sheen had seen my car parked out front, it would be in jail. I'd be in jail now, or worse. Was my faded, and if I'd put my foot down when it mattered, you wouldn't be mixed up in sus now. I told her, I love you. That's all. That's all that matters. Downstairs, she sat me on the couch and brought out her nursing bag. The gas in my leg looked swollen and pink. She was busy tending to it when something, or the absence of something, caught my attention. Aunt Lynch, am I being too rough? No, it's not that. I pointed to the coffee table. Did you move my insulin kit? She looked over, saw a stack of magazines and an empty space where the kit had been. She stood up. I stood with her. We searched the living room, the kitchen, the upstairs and downstairs bathrooms. The kit was gone. We both knew she had taken it. He must have figured it would work to his advantage once he found me. How could I run from him when he was holding the thing that kept me alive? Or maybe this was his way of flushing me out. There were only so many places I could go looking for insulin. He was probably camped outside my doctor's office right now. I'm so sorry, Aunt Lindsay said. It's gone. Then she walked over to me and took Then she walked over to me and took my face in her hands. Don't worry, child, we will get through this together. You hear me? We'll end this together. I nodded, knowing full well this was my fight and mine alone. Next morning Aunt Lindsay woke up to find the following note on her kitchen table. Dear Aunt Lindsay, I know if I delivered this message in person, you'd try to talk me out of it, and I know you'd probably succeed. So I'm writing a note because I can't afford to be wit, to be weak. Not now. I love you. There's no one I'd rather have in my corner. But this is our reality. In order for me to survive and for you to be happy, I need to disappear alone. No forwarding address means no need for you to lie to the police or whoever comes calling. I don't want you on the hook for my mistakes. I couldn't bear it if anything happened to you. There's something else, something far more urgent. I cooked up a batch of buttered grits for you. They're in the Tupperware on top of the stove. Six stars. 
on my heart. So. P.S. As you can see, I have left you both my credit cards. Wait a few days and use them to buy anything you need want. Use them for my sake to throw the dogs off the scent, then destroy them, along with this note. It took me three drafts to get the wording right, then a fourth to make my penmanship legible. The note felt to me like a goodbye, a permanent goodbye, because somehow I was I was sure I'd never see Aunt Lindsay again. There you go. That was the second chapter of this episode. Let's begin with the third chapter of this episode. Let's begin. Simon Crit work at 5 o'clock shop. Spent an hour pushing grates around a boutique gym that hit a local fast food chain where he sat by the window scoffing a three-tyler cheeseburger and curly fries. No doubt about it, the man had asmilated. From the restaurant, I followed him to a rich wine bar in Sunset Park. Lucky for me, the place had a glass storefront. I parked across the street, watched through binoculars from behind my jeep's dented windows. Simon was halfway through a demi-craft of red when a woman in a silken dress taped his shoulder. He hopped up, smiled, gave her a very polite peck on the cheek. <laughs> For a second, I thought it was Serena. White, height, and shape. Wong aids Simon's date was robbing the cradle. They carried on what looked like a lively conversation. For the better part of an hour, then made their way to the movie theater around the corner. An, an indie house sawing two titles, one French and one German. Simon was eager to impress. I looked at my watch, figured I had a couple of hours to kill before they came back out. I hadn't eaten since breakfast. I grabbed three slices at the pizza parlor across from the from the theater, then strode over to Simon's Honda Civic and opened the driver's side door with a Slim Jim. I was looking for any sign of Serena, a recipient from a store in Anthony Costello zip code, one of the ESL walk books. My wife was always giving her a piece of Anna's jewelry, but the 
exterior was spotless. Of course, it was if Simon played his cards right, he'd have company on the ride home. I checked the glove. I checked the glove compartment. Nothing but the vehicle's registration and an illustrated primer on the flora and fauna of the Everglades. Nothing much in the trunk either, just a spare tire, a jack, and a stash of environmentally friendly grocery bags. Simon was starting to annoy me. I glanced at my watch. The movie was only a half hour in. Chances were they'd stop for another drink after maybe even a late meal. Unless Simon's sister planned on classing date night, there was no point in my continuing to tag along. It occurred to me that I could break into his apartment just as easily as his car. If Serena was there, camped out on his couch, so much the better. If not, there might be something to indicate where she'd gone. I copied Simon's current address off the registration, then locked up and walked back to my car. Simon lived in Yuba City in a funky but upscale building, a 19th century boarding school that had been converted into condominiums in the 90s. I got past the lobby door with a bump key and some elbow grease, took the stairs two at a time up to his third floor apartment. For a while, I just stood there listening hoping to hear a television or radio, something to tell me Serena was home. But the only noise came from children fighting in a corner unit. I rang the bell just to be sure, then slipped on a pair of latex gloves and let myself in. The lights were off, the windows open. I heard sporadic traffic coming from the street below, but Otherwise, the place was silent. I switched my phone to flashlight, passed its beam over the living room, then kept going through the rest of the apartment. No doubt about it, Simon had done well for himself. French doors led to a balcony with a locked iron railing. The raised kitchen was loaded with stainless steel, appliances out from multiple containments hung on the walls. The hardwood floors were gleaming, not a speck of dust anywhere. Not in the bedroom, the bathroom, the the study, almost as if he had a full time maid. Well, this was a bust, I thought. When Vincent called tomorrow, for his daily update, I'd have nothing to give him unless I was on my way out the door when it hit me. What if Simon killed Anthony? It was a theory with no supporting evidence, but still it felt plausible. When it came to women, Anthony was pure predator. His type always is, and Simon, from what I could gather, was pure gentleman. On that day picked at random, I'd seen him cry with an old woman 
an awful or dead cat, then greet his date with an innocent peck on the cheek. Simon Champion of the fair sex, he wouldn't take kindly to someone pying his kid sister. Maybe I'd laid it on a little thick with Heidi, but I meant what I said. It was borderline impossible to believe that a 120-pound woman could bring down a mammoth like Anthony. Simon, on the other hand, acting as Serena's white knight. That was easy enough to pixel. Maybe he'd gone there to beat some manners into Anthony. Maybe his rage had gotten the better of him. The idea struck me so hard that, without realizing it, I backed up and dropped onto the couch. But before I could think things through, I heard keys jingling outside, and then Simon's front door swung open. There we go. There was the third chapter of this episode. And now let's begin with the final chapter of this episode. Let's begin. I needed a place to hold up, gather myself. My October 14th, 2 p.m. in the view room A. I needed a place to hold up, gather myself. My first instinct was to book a room at the Four Seasons. Anthony and I spent our last anniversary there. We got into a blistering poolside fight, and then I didn't see him again until two in the morning when he stumbled in and passed out face down on his side of the bed. Believe me, if I was going to kill him, I'd have done it then. The problem with the problem with the four seasons and the Palencia, the Ritz Carlton, the the Regency, was that I'd need a credit card, and even if I weaseled my way in without one, I'd run the risk of being flagged by the staff. The Castello payroll reached far and wide, and then. There were the wannabe, the thugs looking to ingrate themselves with vengeance. I wasn't above slamming it at a Super 8, but even that would be risky. A bitly, even a scratched one, wouldn't exactly blend in with the Hondies and tractor trailers. Meanwhile, I had to get off the street, at least for six remaining hours of daylight. I poured into the parking garage, drove up to the third level, and took a space between a minivan and a Ford F-150. No way to spot me unless you happened to turn your head as you were driving past. I figured I'd set my eyes until dark, then drive straight out of Florida. Put as many miles as I could manage between me and my dead husband's family, then pawn the Bentley for a fraction of its worth and buy a one-way ticket to Bernie's Errors. I've always wanted to learn the tango. I didn't sleep 
if I can't fall asleep in my own bed without swallowing a bucket of pills every night, then how was I going to drift off in a parking garage in the middle of the day, especially knowing I was Uncle Vincent's new most wanted. Still, I tried. I draped a scarf over my eyes and angled my seat back as far as it would go, which is why I didn't notice Defoe walking up behind the Bentley with a crowbar. He'd smashed in my rear passenger side window and was finding fiddling with the lock by the time I had the key in the in the ignition. Don't you dare, he said. Get out of the car now. I cranked the engine, shifted into reverse, stomped on the gas. Defoe leaped out of the way, but not before I clipped his leg. Johnny Blotz materialized from between two SUVs, ran at the Bentley as if he might tackle it, then hauled himself onto the hood of a riot when I switched to drive and laid on the gas again. Stop, Defoe yelled. We just want to talk. He was upright, hobbing at full speed toward his sedan. I might have asked him why he had his pistol out if he on- if he was only looking to check Brock. Brock, Brock, who was an easy six feet, six inches, and must have weighed 300 pounds, half slid, half fell off the fire. He and DeFault made an unlikely pair. Two thugs fat and fit, tall and short, young and old. I was running from Lowell and Hardy. It's hard to burn rubble in a parking garage. I lost my side mill, turning into level two, nearly massive cured an octogenarian and his shopping cart as I blowed down level one. Then I did something I've only seen in movies. I took out the boom boom burial at the attendance station, plowed right through it, and dragged the remains skinning and sparkling into the street. Pedestrians screamed, scattered, then screamed again when Defoe's sedan came bailing after me. The only direction I had in mine was away. I spun right at the first corner, then turned hard into an alley after I saw traffic backed up at the next light. I had the Bentley pushing 70 when I smelled a slab of cement by the back door of a restaurant, sent the car carrying into a dumpster. The airbag nearly knocked me unconscious. By the time I'd scrambled out from under it, the foe was limping toward me, his minion at his heels. Enough, Anna, he said. It's time to come with us. I've forgotten just how. And yes, his skin was close up. 
piquant and glistening, as if someone had taken a cockroach shell and spread it over a human face. Can't do it, I said, leaning with one hand against the Bentley, waiting for my breath to come bounding back. Come on now, Anna, he said, panting his leg as if he was summoning a dog. Here's a free survival tip. Always do the opposite of whatever your would-be assassin commands, which is to say I ran my care. I was guessing they couldn't kill me until Vincent got his a long time. More importantly, I was guessing I could outrun a fat man and a imp. One pork to being the wife of Marbority. You spent a lot of time at the gym with the crumpled Bentley blocking the alley. The only way they could follow was on foot. I figured as long as I didn't trip and faceplant, I'd live to see another day. Go on, go on, Defoe shouted. Stop her before she makes the street. Then I heard tires screeching, and I knew Defoe was planning to hightail it around the block and cut me off on the other side. Unfortunately for me, this alley was the length of an airport one way, and I hadn't cleared a third of it before I crashed. A quick glance over my shoulder told me I had nothing to fear about Brock, who was too top-heavy to keep pace. Now all I needed was for downtown traffic to keep the flow and a crawl. I dug deep for an extra gear, gasped my way through the home stretch, and then I saw Mike's ski block, a city bus. It was pulling past the alley and up the curb as I hit the street. I ran after it, leaped aboard just before the driver shut the doors, then started for the back. Hey, miss, the driver called after me. Forget something? I hadn't taken a city bus since college. I searched my pockets, threw chains down the suit into the light turned, turned green. The smart play would have been to duck out of sight, but I had to know I walked past rows of empty seats, crouched down, peered out the back window. Defoe and the man-child were standing beside the double-park sedan, craning their necks in every direction but mine. I was safe. For now. I was safe for now.